Well, hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Great to have you with us today. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to mention a couple of things that may be of interest to you, our amazing listeners. Firstly, season three of this podcast is drawing to a close. I can't quite believe it. We've got two more episodes to release before we take a break for August. In the past few years, we've recorded and released 72 different episodes, which includes six shorts, two specials, and 64 long-form conversations on the Christian life and leadership. And we're getting close now to reaching 30,000 downloads in that time, which is amazing. And what's more, we've had downloads, in the past two years at least, from over 79 different nations, which is utterly amazing to me. Now, it's always lovely to hear from and engage with you, our audience. So why not get in touch with me? Drop me an email. Tell me where you're listening from. Tell me which episodes you've enjoyed the most. But also, if you have any guest ideas, I'd really love to hear from you for the future. Several times over the past few years, people have suggested guests who've appeared on the podcast and have been really delightful to talk to. And yes, this is also exciting for me because uh, I'm pleased to say that we will be back in September with season four. Uh, I've already got some great guests lined up, including scholar and author Danielle Trewick on singleness and the household, Marcus Honeyset on church authority, as well as some inspiring testimonies from local leaders and believers that I'm sure you're going to love. To get in touch with me, you can reach me by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. That's podcast at newgroundchurches.org. And if you don't get in touch, well, at the very least, I'd love it if you could become a subscriber or write us a review uh, from wherever you download this from, as this will help us to get the podcast out to more people to hopefully equip and inspire more believers out there on their journey of faith as Christians. Now, all of that is the first thing that I wanted to share with you. The second is more of something personal or local to me. As a local church, we believe that God has called us to plant a church and we've got faith to do so in a town local to us called New Haven, a few miles from where I live. And so on Saturday, the 23rd of September, we're inviting anyone who'd like to to come and join us in praying for New Haven and exploring the possibility of church planting in that town. So I wanted to mention it here on the podcast. You can certainly pray from wherever you are, but I'm also mentioning it here just in case you or someone you know might be interested in moving to New Haven and being part of establishing a church there. We're an apostolic people, aren't we? Meaning we're a sent people. We're on a mission. And so is God sending you to New Haven? Why not give it some thought and pray about it? To find out more about New Haven and the church plant there, you can visit our website, www.seaford.life slash newhaven. That's www.seaford.life slash newhaven. Links to that as well as the email address for reaching me will be in the description to today's episode as well. Speaking of which, it's time for today's conversation with Adrian Holloway. 
Married to Julia, Adrian is the father of four daughters. He is a pastor, a preacher, and an itinerant evangelist, speaking extensively throughout the UK with the John 316 Trust, a ministry that he established for evangelism. Known to many of us within the New Frontiers family of churches, Adrian has ministered at the New Day Youth Festival since it began, where he regularly prays for the sick and preaches the gospel, which often results in literally hundreds of young people responding to the call for both salvation and to give testimony about a healing that they've received. Formerly a BBC radio and TV presenter, Adrian started his working life as a reporter on the Times newspaper. Then in 2004, he moved from Birmingham to London to help plant Christchurch London. And now he leads the team at Beacon Church Camberley. For now, it's over to Adrian. Enjoy. Thank you, Jess. Great to be with you. I'm looking forward to having a chat. Thank you. Uh, there's, I mean, as I said to you before we started recording, there's lots of things I'm looking forward to asking you about and finding out about. But why don't we just start with learning a bit about your background, how you became a Christian, and then some of the early days of your faith. Yeah, so I didn't grow up, Jez, in a evangelical or Bible-believing home. Uh, my background was uh, quite academic. My uh, this is relevant. I think I know you want to talk about healing later on, but it's probably relevant to give you this background because otherwise I'm not sure my journey makes sense. But so my dad, for example, um, won a scholarship to Cambridge and was very academic, very cerebral. Um, he became the chairman of something called the IAPS, which is the Independent Association Preparatory Schools. So he was very senior in the world of public schools. Um, for our American listeners, those are fee-paying schools, not like uh, what it's the opposite, isn't it? Private and public. Anyway, a public school, all the Brits will understand that. Um, yeah, so uh, my sister, for example, she got all A's in her O-levels and A-levels. She also went to Cambridge. My mother was also uh, very academic and very cerebral. So my background was very kind of like logical, um, uh, empirical. Um, so anyway, I uh, I was actually very happy in my life before I was a Christian. I can't tell you, Jez, that I was desperately searching for answers or that I was at my wits end and that I had tried everything and found it wanting and that quite the opposite I was really very happy as I was and was kind of like I, I guess I had a kind of a normal average view of religion which was that there are some people who are brought up to be religious and that's fine for them and I don't you know for all I know actually God could exist like they say um that might be true um but but actually I'm happy as I am so I don't particularly need to look into that. I mean, if, you, if, that, if that helps you, that's fine. But I'm actually fine as I am, so on we go. And then what happened to me, Jez, was uh, I was in McDonald's uh, on a Friday night when I was 16. And afterwards, we, we came out. This is in Warple Road in Wimbledon. There was a group of about 20 of us. And at that time, we... Every weekend, every Friday night and Saturday night, we all did the same thing. So we all went to a party 
or we all went to, uh, I don't know, whatever we were doing, temping, bowling, ice skating. Um, so we're in our group that we were always together with, same 20 people every Friday, every Saturday. But one person in the group said to all the other 19, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And then there was like a silence because we'd never heard of anybody our age who went to church. And we were all thinking, what kind of church would you possibly want to go to? And so really it was out of sheer curiosity that we all said yes. I mean, it was just so odd. I mean, the way she said it made it, she, she obviously thought that if we came, we'd actually enjoy it. And that was really odd. Um, and so we were curious. And so we all turned up. So this is only two days later. We all turned up at the 6.30 evening service at Wimbledon Baptist Church. That's a, at the time was a Victorian Baptist Church building. When we arrived, there was a bloke standing on the door and he said, sorry, it's full. And I genuinely couldn't believe it. I'm thinking this is a church. How could it possibly be full? By definition, a church is an empty, cold building <laughs> that wouldn't be full. Now, actually, what he meant was you can't come through these doors because the downstairs is full. You need to go upstairs into the gallery. And I just didn't have any concept of a gallery. Uh, but that was like an upper deck where you kind of can spectate from the upper deck. And um, so we did that. We all went upstairs. And it was a complete eye-opener to me. I, I really didn't know that this was a thing. I didn't know that there were people in Britain uh, today, as it were, that that believed all the stuff. I mean, they were obviously having the time of their lives. They really believed in God. They, they, they obviously felt that they believed that Jesus was alive. Sometimes they actually said, and I, I just found this almost laughable, they would actually say that Jesus had talked to them, which, of course, as someone who wasn't a Christian, was kind of semi-unbelievable, but also semi-comical that this ancient figure would talk to them today. But there were definitely moments during that evening when I thought, either these people are deluded or maybe there's something in it. Like, like obviously, it could be true. Maybe it is true. And then I started to kind of think, well, how likely is it they were deluded? Because, you know, they were kind of normal people. They, they weren't obviously deluded. Um, so that was kind of weird. Plus the one person in this group of 20, she didn't strike me as someone who was just a, a nuts or unstable or kind of, she was just like a, a normal person. So, yeah, I guess, I guess that was the curiosity maybe um, and just decided to go back. That was obviously quite a big decision looking back to go back the second time. And uh, went back four times. By the fourth time, the group of 20 had whittled down to four. So 16 had seen what it was and decided, this is not for me. I'm not coming back. There were actually only four of us by this stage who were going back. And I, I think it was the fourth time I went back that I kind of, I don't know, by then I suppose I realized I'm going to find out, or perhaps I should find out if this is real. Because again, if it's real, if God exists, and I thought God probably did exist, if God exists and Jesus is alive, that would be a really big deal. So I'm not really losing anything by going along to this thing. And so I went back Sunday after Sunday, and I suppose that 
uh, I went, I started going downstairs. And then I guess the main thing was the uh, time of worship, Jez. Uh, perhaps I should say it was the sermons that were really convicting. That's not really true. It was mainly the sung worship. That was the thing where I kind of began to feel something that I would now say is the Holy Spirit. And I suppose I began to feel that I uh, began to feel loved by God. Um, something was happening to me. I definitely started to feel really emotional in the worship and began to feel the presence of God, as I would now describe it. But I still, you know, I didn't know if it was actually credible. And then quite a big moment for me was one day where I decided, look, you know, I can't mess around with this any longer. I've got to actually read the Bible because that's apparently what it's all about. So there was, I, I did this secretly. I was too embarrassed to let anybody know that I was actually choosing to read the Bible, which at the time I would have regarded that as sad. Sad people do that. People who can't get through life, people who need help, people who struggle with life, people who need a crutch in life. They fall upon a crutch, which is, I don't know, Bible reading or whatever they do. But I, I did it secretly, but I hid myself away in a red Volkswagen Polo and opened the Bible at random. I only had the New Testament and Psalms because there had been a, a group of uh, men in, uh, in suits who'd arrived in a school assembly and handed out these Gideon Bibles. Uh, I'd never read it. I never even opened it. But I, I had it in my room, so I read it. I opened it at random. I read for about 15 minutes. And in those 15 minutes, I was I, I was absolutely shocked, Jez. I cannot tell you the shock. Jesus was having a row. I think it must have been Matthew's gospel. It might have been John's gospel. I can't remember. But I opened it at random. Jesus was having a row with the Pharisees. They were having a stand-up argument. They were calling each other names. And then I stopped. And that was crucial in my life, Jez, because in that moment, I realized whatever I think Christianity is, is not the same thing as in the actual Bible. So maybe I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, and I need to actually find out what the, the real Christianity is, the, the thing that's actually in the Bible. And that was a turning point for me, because as soon as I started reading the Bible and finding out what it actually says, as opposed to what culturally people think, Jesus is a nice man. Um, yeah, he probably said lots of nice things. Perhaps it's all been exaggerated. Um, you know, all this stuff. I, I then went, what, what do the actual actual original documents say? And then I began a journey. Uh, it was in total nine months, and then I was converted. Nine months after that first church visit, it was rather unusual. I was converted through a prophecy, which um, there was a woman who at the 6.30 service got up and said, I've got a prophecy for somebody here, and I know who it's for. And then she went into this prophecy, which is very specific, not only about my appearance, but also about things that I was thinking. I was thinking at that moment, as soon as she started the prophecy, I looked across because I had my head down because I realized it was me um, at my four friends. And they all looked back at me and they actually pointed at me and said, it's you, it's you. That's how obvious it was that it was me. And then at the end of this prophecy, where I felt she'd been reading my mind, she she said, it's you. She pointed straight at me. Um, and of course, that was a I was totally on the spot at that point. 
So that was the night where I became a Christian. I'd never heard an evangelistic sermon. I'd never heard an appeal for salvation. There was no such thing as Alpha. This was all happening on a Sunday evening. And yeah, so I, uh, I became a Christian that night. And the following day, uh, just felt different and wanted to tell everybody that I possibly could about Jesus, mainly because I thought, you know, people don't know this. People don't know that if you go down the town centre and you go past the Civic Centre and you turn left down Queen's Road, they don't know that you can get eternal life if you go there. You know, people don't know that. It wasn't like I felt this amazing compassion for people and I just felt the love of God for them. It was more like the truth, there's a real truth and you just don't know, like I didn't know. So I I, I need to tell you what the truth is. <laughs> and you need to know that if you were to come with me and, and, and find out for yourself, this could be amazing. So I just started inviting people along. I was taking every opportunity I could possibly think of. I was praying every day for opportunities. I had a period of two years where every time I prayed for a specific person, where I would name the person before I, uh, at the start of the day, name the person I wanted to share the gospel with. I always shared the gospel with the person I named. Somehow that happened. Um, so, yeah, lots of answered prayer, lots of opportunity, people becoming Christians. And, yeah, so that's how it all started for me, Jess. Wow. God, wow, thank you for that. That's amazing. Um, so when you started taking church seriously and you were getting quote, carried away with this religious phase. How did your parents react and how have they reacted since? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be cautious in answering that because although my father is dead, my mum is still alive. Um, and and it, it was a, a, a cautious reaction from one of my parents and a very strong negative reaction from the other. Um, so I, I'll leave it at that because it's a sore point. Um, but, you know, suffice to say that, you know, uh, one of my parents uh, wouldn't ask me anything about what I've done since I've been working for a church. I've been working for a church since 1996. So, you know, um, they may be interested. I don't think they are. They never asked me anything about it. So, you know, it's it's it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a, an awkward subject. Um, I'm sure lots of people listening to this podcast can relate to it if you've come from from this kind of background that you know it, it's difficult if you if your son has taken a direction in life that isn't the one you would have chosen you can kind of support them but it's hard to be really enthusiastic about something that you don't really understand or can't believe in i can tell you that my parents both thought that i was in a cult for about 15 years after i was converted um, I know that because they've told me that. Um, so, and that again, you know, I'm sure there are some people listening to this who can relate to that. Um, which, you know, a, a loving parent, your kids got involved in something that you've never heard of. It just sounds weird, different, and you're concerned. You know, you want the best for your child. The last thing you want for them is to be caught up in some religious mumbo jumbo. So, uh, yeah. yeah. But I, I think that kind of environment of growing up in a in a sceptical home, shall we say, is, sounds like it's part of what informed and shaped the way that you engaged with in the early days, the reason through approach to your faith. You didn't get 
quote carried away or carried along with just emotionalism there's a uh, a part of you that's, as you said, growing up in a very logical academic home that did the research. I know the books that you've written, uh, The Shock of Your Life and Aftershock, and many of the uh, apologetic sermons I've heard you give. You're obviously a very well-read, thoughtful individual when it comes to grappling with some of the difficult questions. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you think that, Jess. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, in some ways, it's less exciting than that because the truth is that I often hear objections and I think, Oh, that's a really good objection. Maybe that's right. You know, I need to look into that. So it's not just that I'm kind of totally sure of my guns and you know, all I need to do is read up a bit and then there's the answer. Um, you know, so I, I I regularly do have to go back to the beginning. And um, yeah, so my journey has always been when you get an objection, you face it, look straight down the barrel of the gun. I mean, it could be true. Um, some of them initially sound really you know that this this is this is this sounds nuts but nevertheless some of them also sound really good and so i i've always taken them on i've always tried to not dodge them and for me to dodge an objection to think look i know jesus died for me i know he's risen from the dead i know the bible's right i'm sure there's an answer to that but do you know what i'll just leave that for somebody else i've never really been able to do that i've always had to find out for myself um and so that, I suppose you could say that might have slowed me down at times. Um, but what it does mean is that, you know, I, for example, one of the things I've done uh, for, for about a decade, uh, going into a, a student union of a university at a lunchtime with several, you know, a couple of hundred, 300 people in the room, and you're defending the faith. And you literally say any questions and you've not only got the students there, but you've also got academic staff there and you've got literally absolutely no idea what they're going to ask. You could have a physics professor asking a question, you could have a chemistry professor asking a question. And so I do feel confident to do that because I do feel that I have got this quite broad uh, background knowledge of some of the best objections to Christianity and I absolutely love that, Jess. I, I've got to tell you, I've, uh, rather than feeling nervous about it, I feel massively energized by that moment when, you know, anyone can ask anything. Um, sometimes I've had people, this has happened regularly, people will come to the, because the, these, these um, lunchtime sessions are repeated, one's at 12, one's at one. Some people will come to the 12 o'clock and hear what I have to say and then ask their question at the one o'clock because they've been kind of getting ready um, working out what I have to say to come up with the best possible objection. You know, got the whole of the atheist society who've come there as a group. They're Googling, they're finding out objections, they're analysing, they're coming up with the best possible counter. Sometimes you've got the Muslim society there interrupting or trying to take over. Um, and I, I absolutely love that. <laughs> Rather than thinking, oh, that's scary, I think that's great. So, so it does sometimes help. But often I'm sure it would have slowed me down because rather than just powering on, I'm going back to some question about, I don't know, Muhammad's life in Medina or um, some scientific experiment in 1953 that may have relevance to the spontaneous creation of life out of nothing or, or whatever. That's really good. I mean, one of the things I've always admired about you and I pick up from your preaching and the way you pray for the sick as we'll come on to talk about is you you do strike me as being a man of conviction 
that you say what you believe and what you believe you genuinely believe I don't get the impression that you you hold things lightly I think you you, you seem to speak about things that you care deeply about and so my, I guess one of my questions is how have you arrived at the, the level of at least what I pick up as conviction and clarity and confidence even in the things that you believe so that you, although you're aware of all the different opinions out there and all the different options on the shelf, you still feel quite clear that though this is the right way and this is what mm. I should do. Yeah, that's a great question. I think when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, I think back to what actually happened to me. And I did have a sort of 10 out of 10 kind of born again experience so I felt like something beforehand and I felt like something else afterwards so I had lots of people who came to me and said what's happened to you I remember once I brought quite a number of people to church and one of the people at church talking to my friends said you must have seen the difference in Adrian now how would you account for that so it, it was a big deal for me. So I suppose it's not just head knowledge, but I really had a born again experience. Um, uh, and so that, that, I suppose, means it's not just coming out of my convictions about the Bible. Um, I, I guess I've spent a lot of time studying the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I think that there's a really good historical evidential basis for that. Um, other reasons would be, I think there's a really strong uh, argument from the uh, beginning of the universe to God. I think it's extremely likely that God exists based on that evidence, all to do with the, the Big Bang. I think it's extremely likely based on the evidence for the fine tuning of the universe that God exists. So I've got two really good um, reasons to think that God exists. I think the moral argument is a powerful argument for the existence of God. And so when you, you know, you've got, a, I don't know, 95% certainty, 96% certainty that God exists, and then you add to that the evidence for the resurrection, I think you've got a really good case for Christianity being true. So I suppose that's that's the personal experience and then the fact that I feel I've got some really good uh, reasons to think that it's not just a feeling, but it's it, it stands up to scrutiny. Mm. And I mean, you've seen some remarkable responses to your own prayers, as you, you shared about your personal experience of new, being a new Christian and God seeming to answer your prayers daily on who you want to share the gospel with. But I have to be honest, being at New Day over the past 10 years and hearing some of the testimonies that have come out of people being healed in response to your praying for them is quite jaw-dropping, some of those, that, you know, the healing testimonies of the kind that you think they're either lying or God exists. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a third option here because it's some of them are so remarkable. And yeah, there's, there's so much we could talk about. I, I love hearing whenever you share things like prayer and fasting or the prayer days, stories of what you've been involved with around the universities and sharing the gospel in places. Um, but I'd love to come on to talk about healing and prayer for healing because you're one of the few people I know who do that um, quite publicly on a regular basis and have seen some remarkable results is the right word or not so um, perhaps as a kind of segue into that maybe you could share with us to encourage us some of the things that you've seen God do in response to prayer for the sick any testimonies that stand out to you 
Oh, okay, cool. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, first of all, um, the I mean, you mentioned New Day. The testimonies from New Day, I'm pleased to say, are well, some of them at least are uploaded to YouTube. So, if anybody's interested to uh, see them and hear them from the person who's actually been healed, then you know you can just Google my name or put my name into YouTube and you'll get some of those. So uh, yeah, I can I can read you some of those. Um uh maybe I would you like me to read you one or would yeah, that be great. Okay. Yeah, cool. be, I mean I think what would be nice is to have a conversation around healing that uh, no doubt will take us in lots of places, but to pepper it with some stories of actual people who've received remarkable healing in response to prayer. Cool. Well look I, I I'll I'll share this one. Um, this is a, a lady called Annie Temple um, from Biggin Hill in Kent. So she said, I had postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. It's most similar to congenital heart failure. I had it for six years. It's a combination of heart failure and low blood pressure. Even standing up was exhausting. I was fainting all the time, just lifting both my hands above my head for five seconds would make me pass out, guaranteed. One time I got up and walked towards the bathroom. I fainted, hit my head on the bathroom sink. I woke up on the floor and just thought, this is it. My husband won't be home for hours. I'm going to lie here all day. I can't get up. I can't reach the phone. She says, I ended up being referred to the top cardiac specialist in the UK. He's a consultant at King's College London. After doing all the tests, I, I was diagnosed with POTS. There's nothing they can do to actually heal it. They explained it's incurable. So at this point, I asked Annie what had happened to her uh, when she was healed, because she was a, she was healed exactly a year before this conversation that I'm talking about. She said, you prayed, and I had my hand on my heart. After you prayed, I opened my eyes, and I was sure I'd been healed. So I ran around the whole tent, which should have been impossible, I did a lap running around the tent, came back to where I started, and that's when it hit me. I burst into tears. I knew I'd been healed. It's amazing, incredible. I held up my hands and praised God. I had an immediate, complete recovery. This all happened exactly a year ago. Instantly, all my symptoms have gone, and they've never come back. I've never had any symptoms again. So then she explains that she'd had a specialist appointment two weeks after she was healed. I went for the appointment and told them I didn't have the condition anymore because I've been totally healed by Jesus. Now I've done all the tests again. All the results were the results of a normal person. The consultant cardiologist, this is the bloke at King's College London, said he'd never heard of anybody who'd recovered apart from me. I'm the only one because with POTS, they can't heal it. I then asked her what difference her healing has made. She said, I'm a completely different person now. After I was healed, I felt like I was living in someone else's body. My everyday life has changed forever. I can do normal things. I've got a job now. I'm pregnant. Just the hugest difference, a different life. Wow. Praise God. Um, well, before we share any more stories then, I mean, that's a, an amazing example of someone who's been healed. How did you arrive at the conviction that praying for the sick ought to be something that you do as a Christian and that you do before you preach the gospel to them. And tell me about some of your, your journey towards praying for people to be healed. Yeah. 
uh, okay, well, um, it's a bit of a sad story and it doesn't reflect very well on me, I'm afraid, Jez. Um, so I think I told you I became a Christian in 1985. I'm ashamed to say, Jez, I didn't actually start praying for the sick uh, until 2004. So that's actually 19 years of being an evangelical Christian and believing all the stuff. But actually, I suppose I didn't believe all the stuff. Um, so um, healing was, uh, I, I suppose, if I was to kind of think about what are my kind of top three reasons why I didn't do it. One is the one I've mentioned to you, Jez, that I'm a naturally skeptical person. So I'm not really the right kind of profile uh, a person for this sort of thing. I was extremely skeptical. Um, after I left university, where I did a history degree, my history degree was actually all about doubting sources. So it's actually being trained to look at an original source and tear it apart because the person's probably lying. And then I became a, a journalist, as you mentioned. And when I worked for the BBC, they actually trained us to be cynical. So I've been professionally trained to be cynical. So I was basically the last person. I, I would also say that I was embarrassed by the idea of public healing ministry. I found the whole idea somewhat embarrassing, maybe a little bit humiliating, uh, basically really cringy. Um, so I, I, that was another reason why I avoided it. Second reason was I think that, well, I knew that I wasn't holy enough. So I thought if healing is real, and I believe as a Christian that God can heal people, you know, it must be possible God can do anything, then it must be God's power that does it. Can't be like a human that does it. So therefore, if God's going to send his power through a human being, he's going to want a holy, pure vessel or channel. What he what, what, what's not going to work if you have like a contaminated, blocked, dirty vessel or channel. So I thought, well, that rules me out because I know that I'm not leading the kind of holy, upstanding Christian life that would be necessary for God's real power to go straight through me into this person and for them to be healed. But the biggest reason why I didn't pray for people to be healed was because I thought, what if they're not healed? So let's imagine that I pray for them. They might have their hopes raised for healing. Maybe God will heal me. And then he doesn't. And I can't help thinking that they might be worse off. Um, you know, I probably would have been better off as I was before you raise my hopes and then dash them. And so uh, my concern for that, I mean, it's, it's obviously bad enough being sick, but it's probably worse to not only be sick, but then to have your hopes raised and then dashed. So I thought it's probably unkind, counterproductive, besides which I don't think they'll be healed anyway. Um, so what's the point in me praying for them if, if even I don't think they'll be healed? Um, so let's just try and avoid this whole malarkey um, for those reasons. And then I, I, I suppose I had, uh, this is like a bit like confessing a sin, um, I had a lurking fear. <laughs> when I went to university, Jez, I was in a Christian union with some very impressive 
Christians. These are some of the most impressive Christians that I've ever met to this day. And I still have enormous respect for these people who are today, these people are doing great things for Jesus uh, in Britain and around the world. But they did not believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, including healing, were for today. And although I had been converted in the New Frontiers Church, and although I was a charismatic Christian who spoke in tongues, I had this lurking question, what if everything I've been taught and converted into is true? It's just that I'm wrong on this one particular point and that my cessationist friends at the CU are right on this one point, which, of course, is possible. I mean, at this point, I, I, I've never researched it. I don't know. So I suppose I kind of thought, well, hang on a minute. Maybe the reason why not many people are healed is because God isn't really doing that today, which would fit with a cessationist view. So it was kind of an easy option to think maybe the cessationists are right. Therefore, there's no mystery. You know, why is it that so many people aren't healed? Well, what's a bit of a silly question is because God isn't doing that anymore. Um, so, yeah, I had this secret fear that actually the charismatics might be wrong on this particular point. Um, so I can, I can keep going if you like. No, no, this, I mean, let's, let's, let's... This is the bad th news. Th those, those four... <laughs> Those four reasons why we didn't and don't pray for the sick are still just as real as they were then. Yeah. Um, they still they still exist as reasons why people wouldn't pray for the sick. So just help us. How did you work through each of those things? Yeah. So the reason why I uh, eventually had to focus on healing is because I reached a point where my own kind of I don't know whether it's intellectual integrity or just integrity, full stop, became a problem. My conscience was troubled. I was troubled that I was standing up in front of people, telling them all this stuff about Jesus, the Bible, and God, and that I had left this huge question about healing, which is, if you actually count the verses, one of the main things Jesus did, if not the main thing that he did, uh, and also, if you read the book of Acts, uh, again, it's a huge feature in the book of Acts that I had left this in the long grass, hoping it would kind of go away. Um, I mean, the context for this, Josh, is that I was at this time employed as a Christian minister, working as an evangelist, preaching the gospel regularly. Almost every Sunday, I was somewhere at some venue somewhere preaching the gospel i was seeing probably at that time maybe about 12 to 14 people respond for salvation every sunday um so this is all going really well and i'm kind of encouraged about that and i was just leaving this in the long grass and i thought adrian with every other issue that's come up in your life you've always as i said earlier looked down the barrel and addressed it this is the first time you've dodged something so after 19 years of dodging it, I thought, this isn't good enough. You're a fraud. You're a hypocrite, Adrian. You're a con artist. You, you haven't actually looked at this properly. You just left it and hoped it would go away because you don't like it, because it's cringy and embarrassing and all the rest of it. 
So what I did, Jez, was I just decided to, uh, this is my attempt anyway, to wipe my brain of everything I'd ever been taught about healing. Now, remember, I was converted in the charismatic church. I'd sat through uh, Wimber seminars on healing. I'd heard about healing. I'd heard healing stories. I tried to clear my brain of absolutely everything I'd ever heard about healing. And this was my goal. Let's imagine that I'd lived on Mars or lived on the moon. And then suddenly, having had no previous contact with planet Earth, I'm teleported to Earth with the ability to read English. And there's a Bible in front of me. What would I conclude that this book, the Bible, teaches about healing if I had no previous knowledge of the subject? So I decided I'd do this on my knees. So I think I spent um, in total two years doing this. So still not praying for anyone to be healed, but just saying, um, trying to work out what does this, if I didn't know anything about this, let's say I'm not a charismatic Christian, let's say I'm not even a Christian. Let's say I just had to write a report. What does the Bible teach about healing? And I did they publish it as a paper at a university library. Um, what would what would I conclude? And so from that, I came up with some convictions that were different to what I've been taught before. Some of the things I've been taught seem to marry and fit with what I have reading in the scriptures. Some of them didn't. So some of the things I'd been taught, I just couldn't find in the Bible. And so I came away with a conviction, first of all, that I, I just could not find a verse, Jez, that would lead me to think that God always planned to remove the gift of healing at some point around the end of the first century when either the apostles died or the Bible was completed or the canon of scripture was completed. So we're talking about sometime around 95 AD when it seems the book of Revelation was written. So I was searching for a verse that might lead me to think that the gifts of the spirit given to the New Testament churches were always only temporary. Uh, so, for example, you may know one of the cessationist views is that these gifts were tremendous for the early church. They're like a rocket booster to get the church off the launch pad. But once the church is off the launch pad and you've actually got the canon of Scripture, you've actually got the Bible, which, you know, in 55 AD, you don't have the whole Bible. You know, the Corinthian church didn't have the whole Bible. Um, uh, the Galatian church didn't have the whole Bible. You know, they might have a letter from Paul, but they haven't got the whole Bible yet. Um, so I looked and looked and looked for this verse, and I just couldn't find a verse or verses that would make me think that that was what God's intention was, that the gifts of the Spirit were always meant to be temporary. So, for example, what I did find, though, was 1 Corinthians 1, seven, which says that led me to think that the Corinthians, having read that verse, would be thinking that the gifts of the Spirit were given until Christ returns, that they weren't a temporary thing. It seemed to me that if you'd been the average Joe Corinthian reading that letter, 1 Corinthians 1 7 would make you think, yeah, these spiritual gifts that they were really into, remember, they were massively into them. These are going to carry on until Jesus comes back. So I did kind of get that impression. James 5, I think that the instruction to the elders in terms of 
if any one of you sick, call the elders of the church and pray for, pray the prayer of faith. That seemed to be a kind of generic instruction for the church going forward. It didn't seem to be like a temporary thing, you know, do this till 95 AD and then stop. So I, 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 that was that was quite important for me, really. And then I suppose the most difficult bit, because this is the bit that was kind of different from the tradition that I've been brought up in as a Christian. And uh, so this is even controversial and some people listening to this podcast won't agree. And that's absolutely fine. Um, was uh, so spoil, you know, a trigger warning. I'm about to say something that you might not agree with. Um, that the role of faith in biblical miracles is often decisive. So we find that really hard, that faith is a big deal. Uh, we even ridicule or caricature those who teach that. But when I actually, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really wanting to know what does the Bible teach, and this is just my honest report, it seemed to me that in the vast majority of cases, that the role of faith was decisive. And Jesus sometimes said to people who were healed, your faith has made you well. Now, it's not me that's saying that. That's actually what Jesus said. It is actually in the Bible. Um, so, yeah, um, that's true both of the presence of faith, but also in the absence of faith. So when Jesus went back to, Man to Nazareth in Mark 6, 6, he could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So it works both ways. Um, when uh, Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, uh, and he's brought the, the, the epileptic boy, and there's this big furore, the disciples couldn't, couldn't heal him. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus explains, you know, you perverse and crooked generation, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Um, so, so that their lack of faith was a problem. They they had been authorized to heal, both the twelve disciples and the seventy-two had been authorized to heal, but they weren't using that authority uh, successfully, at least in that case. So uh, that was a bit of a controversial um, point to, to make, perhaps. But you know, in, if I'm answering your question honestly, that was something I found. Other things I found um, that this was getting a huge difference from my charismatic tradition. I couldn't find examples of the gift of word of knowledge being linked to healing. So remember, every single healing meeting that I had ever been to had always closely tied the gift of word of knowledge with healing. So there's somebody here with this condition. Please come forward. Let's pray for you to be healed. I believe God wants to heal this condition. If you've got that condition, come forward. And I, I just couldn't find that anywhere. I couldn't find Jesus going to Capernaum saying, I just sense there's somebody here. I think you're on my right. Maybe you're at the back of the crowd. And if you've got a problem with your elbow or, or maybe you're, you've got an issue with your neck, could you come forward? I couldn't find Paul doing that. I couldn't find an example of that. And the reason why that was a big deal to me, Jez, is because that's what I was doing. When, my, when I had made some sort of half-hearted uh, attempts to pray for the sick, I had brought words of knowledge. And actually, I'd seen some people healed. But I'm, I realized, and this is important to me, the only reason I was doing that is because that's what everybody else did. And I thought in any other area, I would not 
recommend that. You just copy what other people do. I would say get your own convictions from the Bible. So I I, I, I left that to one side. I was in such a pickle, years about healing. I just decided to discard absolutely everything that I couldn't see in the Bible and just try and find something that I could go with. Another thing I found was typically in, in all the healing meetings that I was familiar with, the this is a typical charismatic service in the 80s. You have worship, you have the sermon, and then certainly at our church, there would then at the end be some sort of ministry time, and then there'd be the words of knowledge or the healings. And yet in the Bible, it seemed to me it was the other way around, that the whole reason why there's a crowd of people is because somebody's got healed. And then Jesus or the apostles would say, oh, it's not because of our own power of godliness that this man stands before you healed, but it's because of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about who just healed this bloke. And so the people who are gathering are gathering because there's been a healing. And it seemed to me that the whole thrust, this is a big part of the study, the thrust or the point of healing was as a sign to the unbeliever. Now, I must confess to you, I had not really picked that up in my charismatic upbringing, that this was the reason that healings are given. They're a sign to the unbeliever. They're, they're a sign that shows to the unbeliever that Jesus is alive. So um, I, when I did eventually start going for healing, tried to put in the things I'd found. For example, not doing words of knowledge um, and praying for the sick before the evangelistic sermon. And remember, you know, I, I'm doing this because I'm an evangelist. I'm preaching the gospel uh, all the way. 1997 is when I started preaching the gospel on Sundays. I've been doing this all the way through, you know, we're talking about years now. Um, going for a salvation appeal. But think about it. If that person who's asked to respond to the gospel at the end of the evangelistic sermon has previously either seen a life healing testimony or better still, they have been healed. And I can tell you, Jez, one of the most amazing, wonderful things I've seen, I've seen this many times, is somebody coming forward for salvation at the end of the service who has previously had the microphone 45 minutes earlier, holding the mic, giving a healing testimony. I'm assuming because I'm a visiting preacher, this person's part of the church. They seem to be speaking very confidently. Everybody knows who they are. But actually, they're a first-time visitor, and they've been healed, and it's no big surprise that they're coming forward for salvation because they know it's real. They've just been healed. And that, to me, just that seems a lot closer to what we see in the Gospels and the Book of Acts than what we were doing, which is the kind of healing as an afterthought, um, healings for Christians, like if, if healing demonstrates that Jesus is alive, why are we doing that after the service has ended? Surely we should be doing that, giving people the opportunity to say, oh, my goodness, if healing, you know, like you said earlier, either that person's lying or Christianity is true. Let's get that on before the moment of decision where you can, you can respond. So that was a big change uh, for me, going for healing during the worship before the sermon. Yeah, I've, talk, I've talked for ages no. there, but again, I mean, there's there's lots of questions and lots of things that I'd love to talk about and ask about that. But I think what you've done is is lay out your case 
um, for healing and for the way that you approach that in your ministry really clearly that I'm, I'm sure has given a lot of people a real challenge and a kick up the bum, shall we say, to start thinking about this in our own lives as Christians and as those in ministry. Before I come on to some of those questions, because I said let's, let's pepper this conversation with some testimonies, um, how about you read for us another example of someone giving testimony to being healed? Okay, cool. Um, well, um, there was, uh, I'll give you one about somebody who was healed of deafness. I mean, this, this is quite funny how I became aware of this. I was preaching a guest service at a church somewhere. I'm sure you've had this, Jez, when you've preached away from home. And you're given a little introduction as you come up. And the introduction, as, as I was going up to preach, was... Um, Yes, yeah, so we've got Adrian here, and some of you may have heard of Adrian Holloway uh, because you've heard about so-and-so. They mentioned somebody who's actually in the room, uh, how they were healed of deafness when Adrian prayed for them. And so I'm walking up at this point. I'm thinking, who's that? Who's healed of deafness? Because you and I would think this, this is something that I think if you're, if you're new to this whole area, you and I would think that if you knew that you'd been healed of deafness or that somebody in your church had been healed of deafness, you would tell the person that prayed for you and said, you know what, I was, I was born deaf and now I can hear. But that hadn't happened. So all through the sermon, I'm thinking, who is it? Who is it? Is that like, did I imagine that? Did you actually say that? So anyway, at the end of the service, I did manage to talk to this person and um, got the story. So this is somebody who'd been born deaf in one ear. Um, uh, so she she was... You know, it's one of those kind of like profoundly deaf, zero. Um, the specialist said they'd never tested anybody so profoundly deaf at such a young age. Um, anyway, she was totally healed of deafness in her deaf ear. I mean, we're talking about naught to 100, 100% perfect hearing in a deaf ear, been tested at Exeter Hospital. Um, so two months after she was healed, specialists at Exeter Hospital tested her hearing. The audiologist at Exeter Hospital confirmed she now has perfect hearing in, a perfectly, in, a, in her previously deaf ear. The audiologist said this can't happen naturally. We've tested her again and again over the years. To go from being absolutely deaf to perfect hearing is something that cannot be explained. We're talking about being absolutely deaf in one ear to having total normal, normal hearing in that ear. And perfect hearing in both ears, because she also had some hearing loss in her other ear, it's incredible. And she said, when you've been born deaf like me, to suddenly hear normally out of your deaf ear is amazing. So, yeah, that that was one. I mean, I just, I find that remarkable. <laughs> I mean, of course we do. But objectively, on the face of it, what occurred was someone who was deaf listened to someone else's words in their hearing ear and the response to hearing those words objectively or just kind of on the surface on the face of it the response of her body to hearing those words was for her deaf ear to start hearing it's just the mind boggles and yeah. uh, can i just say on that um you may be familiar with the south african healing evangelist john g lake John G. Lake had the same response that you just had, Jez, and he actually tried to study it scientifically. He actually tried to observe it through a microscope. 
he he actually tried to discover how is it that people are healed like what is happening in their bodies when they're healed um anyway that's a bit of a sidetrack but yes it is fascinating how did he get on how, how did he get on with that study uh well uh he you, you'll have to read the books for yourself but he believes he certainly found some he actually observed it uh scientifically um but as i think you know he went to america and uh, opened some healing rooms perhaps you've heard about them anyway yeah john g lake um i mean if if you're interested in what i have to say it is literally just sort of tiny tiny breadcrumbs compared to a mountain of wheat uh, in the ministry of john g lake but yeah I, I, what you mentioned there and what we touched on is fascinating because there seems to be a response of your body in partnership with the the new creative power of the spirit that the same spirit that, that was brooding over the waters at creation ha, in get enters or partners with your brokenness and does something in you that you cannot do by yourself i find that incredible just thinking about god's activity in the world so let's let's come back to some of those questions that you answered for yourself in your study about healing that then led you to go on to pray for people and you've seen some um, really incredible results or responses to that before i mean okay so one of the i don't see or hear of many people in my family of churches at least, doing this sort of thing very much anymore. People don't seem to talk about healing very much publicly or praying for people to be sick, uh, praying for people to be healed on Sunday mornings in services. Why do you think that is? Um, I think that if your theology is that God may want to heal people, and the way that he would show you that is by bringing you a specific message. So you get a message. God wants to heal bad backs in this meeting. Then if that's the tradition you're in, then, of course, you'd be praying for bad backs. But if you think it might not be God's will to heal, um, or, for example, it could be that God, yes, this Christian or this person is sick, but God is using that sickness to teach that person a lesson, maybe a lesson that they wouldn't learn any other way. So God is allowing them to be sick for a reason. And now if that's your view, then who would want to mess with that? I mean, who would want to interrupt that? I mean, if there's something, if they're going to become more holy, more devoted, more consecrated, and more devout, um, somehow God is humbling them, bringing them back to basics, uh, the shedding off, I don't know, carnality, worldliness, and the way that God is doing this sanctification process is by a thorn in the flesh, some sort of physical ailment. Uh, I hasten to add that I don't think Paul's thorn in the flesh was physical, but that's a separate conversation. Um, then you're probably not going to be going for it. I mean, I can sometimes people ask me, do you ever get the impression when you're praying for somebody to be healed that they're not going to be healed? And I would say there's actually only one occasion where I've been really, really weirdly sure this person is definitely not going to be healed. And at the end, I was so struck by this weird feeling. It was in Sussex when this happened. I actually asked the woman afterwards a, a number of questions. because I thought, this is a really weird experience I'm having. And she's as soon as we finished praying, 
I said, how do you feel? I always ask people, is it the same? Is it better or is it worse? Because that gives them the opportunity to say nothing's happened without feeling bad. And they can also say, actually, I feel worse since you prayed for me. And that kind of relieves some of the kind of pressure, makes it easy for them to say that. And she said immediately, oh, perhaps it's Paul's thorn. And immediately I understood why I'd had this weird feeling, because if this woman really believes that God has sent a physical ailment to, to her, then of course, you know, if that's God's will, I'm actually opposing God's will by seeking her to be well or wanting her to be well, because God wants her to have this affliction. So I think if that's your view, then you're going to be cautious because you genuinely don't know if God wants to heal or not. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. So you're not sure. And so that's one reason. Another reason is the reason I gave, the third of the three reasons I gave earlier uh, in terms of, well, what if they're not healed? You know, I might have to spend all week phoning them, helping them because they feel like maybe God doesn't love me uh, because, uh, you know, this other person was healed and I wasn't. And so that's real, you know. That that could well be that that might well be exactly what happens. They actually do think that. They actually think I was prayed for, God didn't heal me, I'm exactly the same as I was. Oh my goodness. Maybe there's some secret sin in my life that I'm not aware of, or maybe there are sins I am aware of and God's not healing me because of them. Or maybe God doesn't love me as much as he loves her. Maybe God doesn't love me as much as he loves him. Uh, why have I been passed over? Uh, was it something that happened to me in my childhood? Um, maybe God's not interested in me. You know, th these are all thoughts that people actually have. It's not, I'm not making them up. They really do think that. So there's, you know, lots of uncertainty. Um, and then it's kind of a, a difficult area in local church life, you know, the healed and the unhealed. Um, so I think there are lots of pragmatic reasons, but I also think there's theological reasons. I mean, can I say, Jess, that there is a difference between the view that says God's will is healing. Um, God wants people to be well. Jesus opposed sickness when he came across it. Um, God wants people. To, you know, sickness is, is from the enemy. Um, sickness is not from God. There's a difference between that view and the view that says we actually don't know whether God wants to heal this, that or the other person. And so sometimes God will bring a word of knowledge that will quicken faith. And we realize actually God does want to heal a certain type of person. That view says healing is for some, but not for all. So if you're in that meeting, you thought, amazing. Gosh, if I had a back back, God might want to heal me. Actually, I've got a bad elbow. So, hey, maybe next week God will be healing elbows. Um, that there is a difference between those two views. Those views are not the same. I guess part of, I mean, a question, but part of what um, the word of knowledge approach is trying to do, I suppose, is generate faith from the person being prayed for, generate expectancy, which, as you've said, the faith of the person being prayed for, as much as we want to dodge it, it does seem to have some correlation in the ministry of Jesus. Um, so I can understand it from that point of view, but you're right. This, if it's also communicating, not everybody can be healed, then perhaps it's a an unhelpful view. Now, I just want to ask you though about about that. Your your third objection to why you didn't pray for people is the pastoral one of having to counsel people because uh, being at New Day is remarkable. But I mean, percentagely, you just look at a crowd and you'd perhaps say, I don't know. 
20% at most of the people who've been prayed for have responded with a testimony of some level of healing, at most 20%. And so there is always a large percentage of people who are asking God for healing in a moment, and his answer is no in the moment. And so how have you in your own heart reconciled that pastoral objection, which you've said is, you know, is real, painful, legitimate, and yet... If we were to listen to that too much, we'd deny some people remarkable healing and salvation in some cases. Yeah, great question. Just to comment on the previous point you made about the word of knowledge, you're absolutely right. When you think about the ministry of John Wimber, there are numerous examples, for example, of him saying, there's a lady here, you're wearing this color dress, you're in the back row, you've got this problem, uh, and then you woke up at, I don't know, seven o'clock in the morning this morning and you thought this. That person on the back row in the pink dress who's got the problem who woke up at seven o'clock and thought that she is going to have massive ex- by the time she's down the front she is jolly well going to be expected she's think wow god knows everything god definitely wants to heal me so you're totally right when you've got the gift operating at that level then if the person doing the praying is expecting god to heal the person who's receiving the word of knowledge you're absolutely right you're going to get a result um yeah, so remember the context of this, Jez, is that for 19 years, I didn't pray for people to be healed. And so one of the reasons is because of this problem that you're describing, that this is what put me off. Yeah, so um, I, I totally understand the weight of this objection. Um, now, for example, last year at New Day, there were 325 people who reported an immediate physical healing. So that's a large number. And there was somebody within that group actually who who never filled out a card because they only found out they were healed when they went to a cancer specialist subsequently who was healed of cancer. So that is a remarkable healing, measurable healing. Um, But I suppose I've reached a view where I feel looking at the New Testament, where it seems that Jesus did authorize his disciples to heal. In John's gospel, he seems to be saying uh, that we would do the works that he's done. Let's not worry about what the greater works are. The same works, you'll do the same works that I did. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He authorized his disciples to heal. He sent out the 12, he sent out the 72. So I've been going with that. Unfortunately, sadly and confusingly, I actually don't know Let's say there's a person, uh, Sam Smith from Surrey, who's not healed. I don't know why Sam Smith from Surrey wasn't healed. I don't have a reason. I can't tell you the reason. Um, I have got no special revelation of why it hasn't happened in their case. Um, So that obviously is a problem, because if I had a clear answer, uh, for that particular person, it could be something they could work on. Perhaps they could learn to live with it. Perhaps they'd understand. But what I don't find is I don't find this isn't the main thing I come away from the Bible with. I don't come away from the Bible thinking that Jesus told people who came to him with healing that it would be good for them to remain sick a bit longer because they're going to learn something through it. So I'd be quite reluctant to say to Sam Smith after the meeting, Hey, Sam, I think God wants to teach you something. So that's why he's allowed this sickness. And um, it's going to stay for a while. You're going to stay sick. I don't know, maybe for five years. I don't know. Um, But it's because God wants to teach you something. 
something you couldn't learn any other way. In fact, the only way, the way that God's chosen to teach you it is not through the Bible or in any other way. He wants you to learn it through this sickness that he sent. So I just can't see, so I'm not likely to say that to Sam, but I don't know why Sam hasn't received. Um, I do know that when Jesus uh, came to Nazareth, he, he couldn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. That could be part of the answer. I don't know. It might not be the answer. I know that was the case in that particular town at that particular time when Jesus was coming. I know that when Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus, Paul couldn't heal automatically. Not everybody who was in Paul's circle uh, was was healed automatically or immediately. So I, I don't know uh, why Timothy had these stomach problems that he had to take a bit of a wa- bit of wine uh, because of his stomach problems. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what the reasons are. Now let's be clear: for some people, that's such a big deal that they conclude, you know what? Let's just make life simpler, easier, and show more pastoral concern. Let's not pray for anybody to be healed. And then nobody will be disappointed. And that is the option I took for 19 years. So I'm not saying this is easy, but in the end, I just couldn't really. For me, that was just like pushing the issue into the long grass. I I, I couldn't carry on doing that because I wouldn't do that with salvation. I wouldn't do that with communion. I wouldn't say, oh, I don't really understand communion. Let's never do communion. I'd never do that with, I don't know, uh, eldership i don't really understand eldership let's not have elders you know i i would i take i take it on so yeah. i just think um that's what and it, is, it is similar to a call for salvation you you don't expect every non-christian in, in a congregation or in a little crowd to respond to the gospel <laughs> but yet you still know i should preach the gospel because it is the means of salvation for people um yeah so it's really, i mean you, you you said then it is hard and it is painful um, do you feel that pain when you're with someone and they are saying, I haven't been healed? Do you, do you, you know, presumably you've sat with people, counseled people. You're based in a local church as a pastor. So you're you're doing both the public proclamation on a Sunday, praying for people. And now you're also doing the, the follow up counsel in the week. Let's try to let's try to engage with God about this unanswered prayer. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I do feel it. But I've not often got hostility from the unhealed person, but I have received hostility from other Christians who are unhappy, troubled by the whole thing. So I have had people who that's been more difficult for me. That's more kind of in your face, hostile. Um, I mean, you and you and I know, Jess, sometimes in Christian ministry, you do get people who are angry and upset. That's typically not been the unhealed person. The unhealed person is usually very gracious and actually appreciates the fact that you pray for them at all. And in fact, I don't think I've ever had that from the unhealed person, but I have had it from other Christians, uh, Christian leaders who have really got a strong objection to it. And that's where you, you've got to be you, you you've got to basically go back to well you know why what yeah my life could, yeah you're right my life could be so much easier if i wasn't doing this let's let's choose an easy life but in the end i just couldn't really look myself in the mirror you know to dodge that as i was just saying um yeah 
And it does. I mean, I've I've wrestled with as, as every Christian, every pastor has, and you, you. There are times where you realise the Christian life would be a lot, a quote unquote, easier if I didn't have to hold this uncomfortable tension <laughs> that both expects expects God to break in and heal, but lives in a reality where that doesn't happen as much as I'd expect it to, and that's painful. And it sometimes you think, oh, it'd be easier if we just didn't do this. But as you rightly point out, we don't do that with any of the other tensions that we hold in our faith, because ultimately we're, we're not we're not thinking that healing is a magic spell. We're, we're bringing people to a personal father who has a personality and a will, intent, decisions. We, we end up having to say, well, we trust you, God. That, and that's the Christian's life, isn't it? We're saying, I trust the father. Ultimately, my job isn't to know what the father's doing. My job is to ask him to do what he's told me to ask him to do. Yeah. I think it's important just to remember the context of New Testament healings. My understanding from my study, this could be wrong, is that healings are primarily a sign for the unbeliever. So if you pray for somebody in Sainsbury's uh, to be healed and they're not healed, that person is not thinking, oh, maybe this is Paul's thorn. They won't be thinking that because they never heard about Paul's thorn. They don't know who Paul is and they don't know what his thorn was. That person will probably be grateful that you showed concern for them. They're not particularly surprised that they weren't healed because they weren't expecting anything anyway. And, and that's the context. So the last few minutes of the conversation have all been internal, Christian church, Christian. Uh, that's actually not, in my opinion, if you were to actually number them, that's not the main context for New Testament. Healings. Healings are an evangelistic sign that Jesus is alive to people who don't yet believe that Jesus is alive. That is the context of evangelist of healing. So my experience of praying for healing has been 95% of it in evangelistic meetings. Um, probably only 5% of the time, meetings that are full of Christians. And I would not have the same confidence praying for. Christians in that context, my confidence would be healing as a sign, and uh, because that's what I learned from my study. Remember, I was totally stuck. I was totally in the muddle. I was totally down in the dumps about it. I was nowhere. I was in a right pickle, and so I had to just go with the convictions I found in Scripture. Um, so I think healing is a sign for the unconverted. I think that's that's the primary gift, but not solely, because you have got James five which makes it clear that healing is also for believers. Um, so we definitely should be praying for the sick and the prayer, the, the prayer prayed in faith will make the sick person well, absolutely. But if you were to say, what's the main, remember that thing, if you've lived on the moon, you just read the book and then you have to report what you found, you would conclude that the main reason for healings, the reason why healing is given as a spiritual gift is as a sign to the unbeliever. And that's my conviction. Mm. That's really good. So, so would you week in, week out as a pastor teaching and preaching his people, would you discourage, if that's not, this is too, too strong a word, would you say it's not advisable that you should be praying for the sick every Sunday before the pastor comes to preach to the flock? I, I think that the best way forward with this is to go with your convictions. Because, for example, if you read Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, and he rewrote that book, why I'm still surprised by the power of the Spirit. His journey was when he came out of cessationism uh, through an encounter with John White, and he became involved with John Wimber. 
His whole journey is the word of knowledge journey. That's his gift. That's his ministry. I think he should go with that. That's what he's got confidence for. He was discipled by John Wimber into that. He's seen it done. He was mentored in that. He's done it all over the world. I think he should do that. And so if that's your journey, Jez, I think you should go that because you've got convictions about that. So you should go with what you've got faith for, what you've learned. The only reason why anybody would uh, come to my position would be if they did the two-year study of the Bible and came to the same conclusions that I did. But maybe you come to different conclusions. So I think you should go with what you have faith for. I think if somebody were to just do what I do, because, I don't know, Adrian Holloway does it that way, that's the problem we talked about earlier. We just copy what someone else does. You've got to get your own convictions. Um, so, you know, a, a local church might say, look, we're going to present this on a, I mean, you know as well as I do that Willow Creek Community Church in, in Chicago grew massively to several tens of thousands. They said, what we want to do is put something on a Sunday, which is uh, a mixture of drama, music, preaching. That's going to be our Sunday, and we're going to teach the believers Wednesday night. That's the new community. Now, I don't know how many churches or if any churches had ever done it that way, but you know, hang on, what, what, what's the problem here? These guys are seeing thousands of people converted. They do gather the church for Bible teaching, but it's not on a Sunday, but they have that happening Wednesday night, and they have thousands of people coming, and people invite their friends regularly. And lots of people become Christians and get baptized. Well, let's go with that. I mean, if you're changing, if you're seeing thousands of converts that way, let's do that. So that's what they had, they had convictions about. That's what they believed in. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, I sort of would cheer on whatever you've got that you've got convictions about. You've got to go with what you've got convictions about. I happen to get convictions about this because I'm an, I'm an evangelist and because you know, I'm preaching the gospel. And so that's why I'm interested in anything that helps with the appeal. And this helps with the appeal. If you've had people healed previously in the meeting. So that's why I ended up where I ended up. It's really, really helpful, Adrian. Um, just as we draw things to a close, uh, have you, is there anything else that's in your heart and mind that you'd really want to leave people with to kind of I think you've covered so so much ground um, and put things so succinctly and so clearly. It's been very very helpful and inspiring and provocative personally to think I've got you've got to. What I'm hearing is you've got to fight for a conviction on this. You, it's not good enough to just copy someone, imitate. That's because it has to come from a position of faith, and we we fight for faith by hearing the word. The faith comes from hearing. Therefore, we need to pursue god for convictions of how this what this should look like in our own lives and ministry so that's not just pastors need to think how do i do this in my church it's every christian needs to think how what's the what's god giving me faith for in my day-to-day -day life that's one of the big things i'm getting from this conversation what's come to mind about anything else yeah thanks jez so my kind of extra thing would be um i'm not sure how much people appreciate what an amazing opportunity carol services are uh, in, in this country. So this isn't necessarily true of continental Europe or true of other parts of the world, but there is an amazing tradition of carol service. This is partly because uh, I think it's 45% of all people in the UK have been to either a Church of England primary school or a Catholic primary school. 
So these people have been to a carol service every year from the age of four to 11. And so one of the things I would say, the most one of the most surprising things that I share with, say, neighbors here where I live, is that I've often preached to crowds of over a thousand people where there'll be maybe 80 Christians and 920 non-Christians. I've often preached to crowds of over 3,000 people. This is in Britain, in the UK, um, where there might be, again, 100, 200 Christians, 3,000 non-Christians attending at carol service. I've preached in football stadiums. I've preached in three football stadiums in the UK. Like These are league grounds, not non-league grounds. Um, I've preached uh, in cathedrals. Uh, in cafeterias, in university halls, and massive events where people will come to hear. Uh, well, but they come primarily, of course, to sing the carols, and that's a huge part of the event. At these events, you know, I mentioned earlier that a typical Sunday I might see 12 to 14. I think a really top Sunday would be maybe 30 salvation responses. That's happened a few times it's quite unusual might be a larger church or a church that's particularly evangelistic and got lots of guests there but at these big events you know we would see you know often over a hundred people respond uh, um, sometimes occasionally over 200 and I just don't know whether people are aware of that um, and I would really encourage anybody in Christian ministry to make the most of Christmas there's this is kind of one of the most positive things about living in Britain that there's still this kind of nominal Christianity background culture that we have and and also just to encourage people that look when people do hear the gospel they often say yes so our, our issue is not unresponsive guests our issue is the fact that we aren't seeing many guests invited and that's to do with the fact that Christians are very busy busy with their families, busy at home, busy at work, busy at church. And so they perhaps don't have a lot of time to build non-Christian relationships or more likely they'd never really seen it modeled. And so they would actually quite like to lead an evangelistic lifestyle. They've just never actually seen it done. And evangelism is more caught than taught. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have the unique perspective of having seen literally thousands and thousands of people respond for salvation. It's been a great privilege in my life. And it's not a surprise because when people actually hear the gospel, a good proportion will respond. The issue is, can we get people to that point where they actually hear the good news? And uh, that's what we need to work on. How do we get Christians out of their Christian bubbles, out of that church sort of ghetto into enjoying an evangelistic life, like not, not just doing it because some church leader or something like me has whipped them and told them you jolly well should, but they actually want to play five-a-side football. They actually want to go basket weaving, doing upholstery, motorbike maintenance, climbing wall. Uh, they want to join the book club. They want to do these things and they make friends and then they can invite them. Amazing. Preaching to over 3,000 people regularly during the Christmas period in modern secular Britain. What a great opportunity carol services appear to be. 
Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. There's been so much that has lived with me since recording it with Adrian. It's certainly given me faith again to pray for my non-Christian friends, particularly when I spend time with them. Um, We've got an outreach event coming up shortly where we're going to be doing just that in the open air in the town that I live. I'll let you know how it goes. What was it about what Adrian said that really stood out to you? I hope there was something that you can share with others and be inspired by. A reminder that descriptions to everything that was talked about, Adrian's website and church, uh, as long with the email address and the church planting opportunity website, all of that will be in the description to today's episode. Do check that out and I'll be back in a fortnight's time with another conversation about Christian living and Christian leading. God bless you. See you then.